All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 11th day of September 2018. Before I talk more about today's show, let me remind you that I am the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and uh, you can subscribe to my letter by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or you can call our office in New York uh, during the normal work hours, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. I uh, would also encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter, especially if you're interested in the biotech sector. He's got some very exciting things that he's working on now, um, a couple of them that I've invested in and I talk about in my own newsletter from time to time. But ChenPicks.com is the place to go for Chen's work. Uh, he's done extremely well uh, with his investment advice over the years and uh, always some very interesting ideas that he passes along to his subscribers. Also, I'd like to uh, encourage you to go to OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA, that's uh, to catch up with Michael Oliver and uh, consider subscribing to his letter. We'll be talking to him in just a couple of minutes here. Uh, I do want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And thanks also for sending along your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. We do need to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for this week. RN Resources, Genesis Metals Corp., Great Bear Resources, Klondike Gold, and Novo Resources. And we'll be hearing uh, from the ch- executive chairman of RN Resources in the second segment of today's show. Uh, a very interesting company, I think, with a great deal of upside. Share price down a lot now, so uh, maybe one you want to pay attention to. I've titled today's show, Why is American Civilization Self-Destructing? Jeff Deist, Ivan Bebek, and Michael Oliver are my guests this week. Why are organizations like Black Lives Matter and Antifa violently prohibiting the expression of ideas that they oppose? Why are university campuses, once fertile grounds for an honest search for truth, now the scene of violence against the views opposing the federal government's own sponsored religion, namely liberalism? How will this destruction of our First Amendment rights impact life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and financial well-being in America? What can we do to protect ourselves against the moral and financial carnage that results? So those and more questions are the kind of topics we want to ask Jeff Deist about. He'll be with me in the second half of today's show. Of more immediate concerns are the companies that we are investing in, and one, as I just mentioned, are in resources. Uh, it's a top pick in my newsletter. I own it personally. It is a sponsor of this show, so I'm really pleased to tell you that Ivan Bebek, 
Uh, the executive chairman of Aron will be with me right after the first commercial break. But right now, I'm very pleased to tell you that Michael Oliver, proprietor of OliverMSA.com, is with me to provide his insights in the markets. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to be back. Now, um, applying CPA, CPI data, someone just crunched the numbers and found that the price of gold using the, uh, the U.S. government CPI uh, numbers is, uh, in real terms, the price of gold is the lowest it's been in 50 years. And uh, from a fundamental point of view, that would suggest to me that now might not be a good time to sell your gold and buy stocks, though I'm sure that's the inclination of a lot of people. It seems that's what's been happening. In fact, your weekend MSA 360 report suggested that uh, you won't need to see too much more on the upside to really see gold break loose uh, with a new move to much higher levels. Can you share your thoughts about gold, uh, the gold markets with us right now from your technical yeah, perspective? The uh, gold, uh, gold's drop ended actually four or five weeks ago, uh, just above 18, uh, excuse me, 1160. Mm-hmm. Then rebounded to 1213, in a sense nested basically in the 1190s, 1200 area. I'm talking mm-hmm. the spot month, futures, October gold. Now, meanwhile, at the same time, silver and GDX, the gold mining ETF, have continued lower, you know, is, mm-hmm. is still in their panic, whereas gold is stabilized 3% or so off of its low is just sitting there, you know, picking its teeth. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's positioning for the last two weeks to break out over certain levels of resistance that we can define in the reports that are relatively minor levels of resistance, but I think it's posturing there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, I'd like to see some sympathetic action, not so much out of GDX, because it's, it's, a, it's a wet noodle, uh, not, but more out of silver. Um, silver right now, you know, it's plunged under 14 twice uh, last week and again this week, made a new low today and then rebounded uh, back over 14. Uh, it will take a lot to turn silver up, and um, frankly, let's just forget this week. Let's assume this week you don't. It takes 1449 weekly close, in my view. Mm-hmm. Next mm-hmm. week, 1428 will do it. Wow. Oh, that's, that's 25 cents above the mark, not even 25 yeah. cents above the spot uh, month, which is September contract. So, uh-huh. I mean, it doesn't take but a sneeze to get it rolling back on the upside. And one of the virtues of a, of a market that goes straight down, like silver and GDX did over the last few months, where if you look at a price chart, it's just like a little waterfall, is when you turn up, the chart sellers don't know where to sell it. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. no resistance. In other words, yeah. you go back to like 21 on GDX to find any resistance. And on silver, you know, a couple dollars. Uh, uh-huh. So there's a vacuum above you. If you turn, uh, it's just whoosh. You, know, you could whoosh right back up. You could V-bottom. Sure. And sure. my suspicion is if they turn, they're going to V-bottom uh, and then catch up to catch back some of what they've lost against gold over the last few weeks while they've gone down and gold has not gone down. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I broadly agree with that, that fundamental observation. And uh, there's another thing I noticed. Uh, the um, Mises Institute had a report recently. Uh, you're having Jeff Deist on today who's yes. uh, had uh-huh. Mises Institute. But in one of their uh, daily market letters, they had a, a new Federal Reserve metric that's uh, maintained by the New York Fed. Yeah, I saw UIG, that. Mm-hmm. UIG, you know, uh, yeah. underlying inflation gauge. Uh-huh. And they calculate it more broadly than the silly CPI. Yeah. And it happens it's at 13-year highs mm. at 3.3%. Wow. Everybody used to talk about 2% inflation at 3.3% annualized rate. 
right. as of their latest monthly reading, but it's a 13-year high. Uh, and again, it's much broader than the CPI. They don't mention it much. It's sort of one of their little indicators that's off in the background, and mm-hmm. but it, it, it's there. Uh, you know, and again, I'm I'm not a fundamentalist. I, I do have those. I share your broad views on these these markets in that regard. Uh, yeah, you're not going to go to zero in commodities, and you're certainly not going to go to zero in silver, gold, and gold miners, and so forth. And I think we've probably approached theoretical zero here, <laughs> and therefore one should. Uh, with that in the back of one's mind, look for a technical justification to go long, and that's that's what we work on, uh, mm-hmm. is the reassertion of the uptrend. Yeah. Um, Michael, I could you give us some, some sort of an idea of what you would need to see right now this week or the next week uh, for gold let's and start getting you excited? Let's assume this said, week is a transition. Uh, but on yeah. silver for next week, I, I tentatively cal- calculated fourteen twenty-eight, $14.28 mm-hmm. weekly close would look quite stout. Quite good. Mm-hmm. It looked like you could you could really scoot. And for gold this week, I need to see. Uh, this is October gold. Uh, yeah. Most people are looking at December, but October is still the front month contract. It's a normal active month. Uh, I need to see twelve oh eight weekly close this week. Which mm-hmm. is about, I think a, about ten dollars above for the market. Or next yeah. week twelve oh six. So weekly close. Yeah. So th- those yeah. are, those are numbers that are within the range of the last two weeks. By the way. My goodness, La- yes, and, and indeed. Or two weeks traded above those numbers. I want to see a weekly close up there. So mm-hmm. if I see that and I also see silver turn, I think we're in for a, a turn. Now, also, mm-hmm. I think the stock market is trying to turn down. The S&P is fighting uh, a royal fight here. The NASDAQ's already done damage, intermediate mm-hmm. trend, as far as I'm concerned, on the NASDAQ 100 is, is uh, cracked. Yeah. Uh, but the S&P didn't do it, and the S&P missed it by, oh, 10 points, no big deal. Uh, but it's not far below us, less than a percent below the current market. The S&P will break its intermediate trend, and I think head back down again. What's really interesting to me is something that's not mentioned. Everybody talks about emerging markets are weak and how strong the U.S. market is. Take a look at the DAX index in Germany and the Eurostox 50 index, which is like their blue chip index of the Eurozone. They're on the lows of the year. They're pressing at their three-year averages. And they're way back. They're back below the 2015 highs. Oh, oh. That'd be like the S and P trading at about 1,300 right now. Wow. Uh, now, now these markets move. They're developed market indices, and they move <laughs> with the S and P, but they don't move at the same percent. You know, S and P may go up more than they do, or times even go down more than they do. But mm-hmm. they tend to walk in the same direction as the S and P. Since February, they haven't. They had the February drop. They had a little bounce effort, just like S&P did in March and April and May, and continued up. They didn't. They rolled back over to the lows. And yet nobody's headlining this or, or talking about it. We're, make, we're, we're on the lows of the year and about to blow annual momentum trend structures that we calculate that go back to the 2009 low. Wow, yeah. So huh. it, it, I, I can't conceive of that happening and it not having implications <laughs> For the other developed markets, namely the yeah. U.S. markets, absolutely, so, uh, Ab- absolutely, nobody's mentioning it. You know, well, Michael, with with just with just a, a minute left or so, I mean, you're looking at this at this uh, inflation index that you that the Fed watches, the New York Fed watches. You know, it's about a percent, more than a percent higher than the CPI. Uh, you would think that that is likely to encourage them not to be easy with the monetary system. Uh, they're likely to hang in there tighter, which I think would also uh, not be very bullish for bonds. 
Well, the, the bonds are not behaving. Uh, we expected a counter-trend rally. We got one after the May low, but it, it, we thought it would go further. We thought it might sustain longer, and maybe it will reassert itself. But it's frankly, uh, it's weakening now to the point where I, we have some doubt as to whether it's continuing. Instead, we may be resuming the longer-term downtrend, meaning higher rates. Uh, and uh, I, I frankly don't care what the Fed does on overnight stuff. I care about, you know, 10-year and 30-year. And right. uh, they, they're heavy. They're heavy. Right. They're heavy. Uh, All right. So. Well, well, that's, uh, that's a warning uh, for sure. Uh, those of uh, people that have the ability to get out of the bonds, I think it would make sense to consider at least lightening up. Michael, thank you so much for your time. You, it's always, always a pleasure having you on. Always, Your insights always very much appreciated. I, I thank you very much. And uh, we'll... Look to do it again sometime. Uh, actually, next week I'm going to be reco- I'm going to be in Portugal, so you'll not be on next week. I have to pre-record that entire show. But the following week, hopefully, you'll be with us. I uh, always look forward to having you. Thank you so much for being with us again. Thank you, All right, folks. Uh, well, don't go away. Ivan Bebek, the executive chairman of RN Resources, will be with me right after the commercial break. So don't go away. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corp. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jerry Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Ivan Bebek. Ivan is the Executive Chairman and Director of RN Resources, and uh, many of you know him. You've heard him before on this show, but for the benefit of those who are not familiar with him, let me just uh, mention a few of his achievements. He's uh, been over 18 years of experience in financing, foreign negotiations, and acquisitions. 
In the mineral exploration industry, his understanding of the capital markets and ability to position, structure, and finance companies that have been associated with has been uh, instrumental in their success. Indeed, he's had uh, a couple of very noteworthy successes. He and his uh, his partner, um, they've uh, they were he co-founded Caden Resources, which was sold to Agneagle Eagle in a very bad market. I might add, at a nice gain uh, for yours truly. I had some shares of that. It's, uh, I think, about the only thing that gained money in 2014 for me. And uh, he, uh, Ivan was also a co-founder of Keegan Resources, now a Sanko Gold. Uh, and he is uh, the co-founder of Torque Resources. It's uh, another company that's uh, I think has a great deal of promise. And, of course, um, he also serves on a board of directors of Gold Standard Ventures, a company that I've covered in my newsletter in the past. So, now with uh, RN Resources, we're really, really looking forward to some uh, some great things from Ivan. Thanks for joining me again, Ivan. Uh, thanks for having me, Jay. Really appreciate being here. Always good to have you with me uh, because you always have a lot of interesting things going on for sure. RN uh, trades in New York and in Toronto under the symbol AUG. Uh, 90.2 million shares, I believe, is the number that I have uh, trading at a dollar five in New York earlier today. Um, Ivan, it's, it's been a, just a really tough market. And as I was just uh, talking to Michael Oliver before you, uh, somebody just crunched the numbers and, and recognized that in terms of the real price of gold, uh, discounted for the inflation rate in the United States, gold is selling at a 50-year low. And, of course, I don't need to tell you, it's uh, for the junior resource sector, it's just been a tough market. How is your management team responding to this uh, current market reality? Well, there's... Two, two things that, that go with that, and first and foremost, um, we've taken some pretty drastic austerity measures in terms of um, scaling back our burn rate considerably and uh, becoming a lot more efficient. Um, our CEO, Sean Wallace, has, has taken a, a scale back in, in his financing, or sorry, in his salary, so has our CFO. And, um, you know, we've ended a lot of very supportive consulting tra- contracts just to be a bit more focused. So we're stretching our dollars a lot further. Um, we've drilled some spectacular holes up at Committee Bay, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, however, we're treating the market for what it is. Uh, even though we have a lot of optimism, we see a change in the marketplace. Um, we have certainly taken a, a hard line to, you know, survive in the reality in the most efficient way possible for shareholders, which is what all companies should be doing at this time. Uh, regardless of the optimism towards the coal market. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, you and I have been through enough of these things to know what happens to companies that don't. Uh, Committee Bay, uh, it's just a huge target that you've got up there. And, of course, limited at this time in terms of how many months of the year you can work up there. You've uh, completed your drill program this year. What was your objective there with that drill program? And, and what, I know you don't have assays yet, but what can you tell us from uh, visualizing the the, gore, the the drill core so far? What are your geologists uh, thinking? Well, it's um, the last three years prior to this year, it's been really, um, you know, looking for the needle in the haystack because the majority mm-hmm. of the rocks are covered by, let's just call it a, a layer of dirt. We call it till. Mm-hmm. And glaciers moved over that dirt on top of those rocks. So it, it's really, um, you know, a mask targets that you're, you're trying to find undercover. And I think a lot of the world's biggest discoveries will be found in difficult places undercover because the easy ones have been found. Now, the last three years, we've gone up there with a drill called a RAB drill rig, which is a rotary air blast drill rig. And what this does is it crushes the rock into little chips and you fill bags of gravel that get separated. Uh, you split it in half and you send half of it to the assay lab. 
The problem when you have a short season and you're drilling these gravel shifts, you can't really tell if you're in the right rock or not. You you have mm-hmm. a very loose or a very, very vague interpretation. So this year was the first year, as, as we described last year, if we made a discovery, which we did at IVIC, uh, we drilled 12 meters of about five grams per ton. We said we go back with a core rig and, you know, as anticipated that once you pull the core rig out and you get to see core versus a bag of gravel, you start to see what's really going on in the rocks. Is there veining? Is there, you know, all the right minerals that would be mm-hmm. associated with gold? And, you know, I think for, for now what we look at is some very basic logic logic factors that I think you we all can relate with. The, the ice was moving from south to north, and there's a big shear zone, big bodies of rock that were, were sliding against each other, which melted and created a room for fluids to come into the rocks. Real simple. As the ice moved over the shear zone, it deposited a bunch of boulders down ice. Now, these mm-hmm. boulders range from 0.2 to 186 grams per ton, with a lot of them in the 4, 5, 7, 20 gram per ton range, so averaging around 11 grams per ton if you use a wow. couple gram cutoff, which is, which is a great average to get out of these boulders. Now, there's two types of gold occurring in the, or two types of rock that are hosting the gold in the boulders. We've drilled both of those rock in our core. So the rock that we drilled looks identical to the rock in the boulders that has gold mm. in it, which all it does is it gives you, you know, a good shot that there might be potentially gold in the drill core. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was to summarize this in, in one phrase or two, it's, um, it's real simple. There's two types of rock that you can drill with the core rig in your career as an explorationist. The kind of rock that you know is completely boring, dead, and, and you know not to expect any results. And the other kind is the ones that you, you lose about four hours sleep a night until you get assay results. And, uh, and that's where we're at. We've, um, we've, we've pulled the, uh, the pins and needles you know, type of core, and we see it over about a, a kilometer and a half uh, is, is the distance we've, we've tested. Mm-hmm. There's about 16 holes that we've drilled, and we certainly don't expect all 16 holes to run, but we're hoping to see, you know, three or four or maybe maybe over a 500-meter width to start run out of that bunch of 16 holes, which means we have quite a few shots here to see some gold show up that's meaningful. Now, when you go up there with a core rig, it certainly points you in a lot of different directions. You know, you can go in either direction. We don't know until we get results which mm-hmm. is a better direction to go in. So, you know, with the with the, the efficiency of not wasting too much money, you know, you drill enough to, to see what happens before you go back with four or five drills and, and really put together a, a high-grade resource. And where we're most excited is that we've hit a lot of veining in the core that's associated with rock, rock around it that is seen in the boulders, and there's high-grade in the boulders. So real simple, it's the best shot we've taken in four years. It's been a really long road to get here. Um, you know, what if it doesn't hit? Do we go back to Committee Bay? We will. We would, we would absolutely go back, but we're going to be more modest with future programs if these things don't run meaningful gold. There's so many other targets on that mm-hmm. belt that we haven't got to yet. On the flip side, if we're successful here, um, shareholders will we'll know between September 24th and August 15th, all the results will come back. The first half of the results will be back probably between now and uh, the first few days of October. The balance will come back around the, by the mid of October. I'd say that the second half were drilled with more confidence in the first half, but I couldn't tell you which rock looks better, and neither could the geologist. They both look spectacular. So there'll be a lot of really good shots here. And uh, at the same time, we've just finished drilling a Homestake Ridge in BC, so we have some really good-looking rock that we've drilled there as well that we'll look forward to results in October as well. So a lot of results on the horizon.
Okay. Well, we'll certainly be watching uh, with bated breath, no doubt about that. Um, so with Homestake, uh, I, anything you can comment on that in terms of what you're seeing? I think your objective there was to probably expand the resource because you do have uh, a high-grade resource yeah, there already. There's three deposits. They they make up about one point. 3 million ounces of 7.5 grams per ton gold and silver equivalent, which is uh, a very rich deposit. And uh, we focused this year on a place we had success last year called South Reef. There's about 100,000 ounces of about 13 grams gold and silver equivalent at South Reef. And we followed it to the north. Um, you know, initially we thought we'd stay in tight, but um, like any shareholder, we looked for exposing a bit more than just a conservative step out. So we stepped out about two and 400 meter step outs to really give us a shot at opening it up considerably. And, um, you know, there's some rock there that, that has a shot. But uh, again, it's, it's really hard to say at this time. It's just nice to know that it's not dead rock we were drilling that we're not looking forward to. It's the other kind, the kind that you, you lose sleep on. So we're, we have some exciting opportunities there as well. So you're all so you're all for those kind of rocks that you lose sleep for and and wait for the assays and so uh, I'm not probably going to be losing as much sleep as you but I'm certainly going to be watching very carefully because I own a few shares as well. Now listen, uh, the other one that I really want you to talk about is Sombrero. There's Sombrero project down in Peru and I use several projects uh, in Peru, but this is the one that you're most excited about and you put out a press release on September 5th. You and uh, quoting you as well as Michael. Henriksen's, uh, your your structural geologist, you guys are really excited about this. I just read a quote from you in that press uh, in that news release. You said the opportunity for discovery at Sombrero is substantial. It is extremely well situated with excellent access to infrastructure, and all the results to date give us confidence that major gold, copper, scarn, and or porphyry bodies could be present. Uh, talk to us about Sombrero. What are you doing there? What do you hope to achieve? You're just starting a drill program there now. First time, I guess, that that, uh, that, that uh, target has been drilled into. Yeah, this is a massive project. You know, it's Sombrero was something It took us about a year and a half to get access to the project, or everybody would have heard about it sooner. Um, it has a lot of outcrop, which is different from Committee Bay. And since we've had the property, uh, the government actually put high-tension power lines over top of our property. And we joke to each other that if we find a deposit or a mine, that we just plug in the extension cord. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's not... It's not too many places in the world that you'll see that kind of uh, infrastructure blessing a project alongside a highway and a town nearby. So you have people, roads, there's water, and obviously the power, which is generally a, a huge cost. So what mm-hmm. I just described there is profitability, and uh, this will make whatever we find highly profitable. Now, the second thing that really you know, gives us confidence here is the amount of copper and gold we've sampled on surface. And if you look back at any of our releases about Sombrero uh, earlier this year and a year and a half ago when we had a first look, you're going to see a lot of multi-gram gold and a lot of multi-percent copper, up to 17% copper, up to 193 mm. gram per ton gold. Now, mm. those numbers are obviously you know, outliers, and we don't expect to find a deposit that rich. That would be you know, beyond incredible. What we're looking for in those numbers is a high metal budget. So we have a really big system identified by two really important rocks t- touching each other, and an event occurs when they do in, in these types of systems, and we can see the metal budget for gold and copper being extremely high. And most recently, we had a chance to do something called geophysics, and not to get too complex, but we use electricity. We put a charge into the ground. If it hits a rock that's called a sulfide that may hold gold or gold mm-hmm. or copper, 
the rock will hold the charge for a few milliseconds. You can measure that, and it'll give you a signal to surface. And what we found in our first target, and there's about four of them, we haven't gotten to the other three yet, was a three and a half kilometer long target. That's about 600 meters wide. And on surface, about 500 meters away, we trenched about 100 meters of 0.46% copper and gold equivalent, as well as 100 meters of 0.3% copper and gold equivalent. Now, those trenches aren't overly high grade, and a lot of people would agree with me there, but what's important to know about those trenches, and if you see our press release, there's images that show it, these took place in rocks that have been rained on for millions of years, and, and as you know, copper is water-soluble, so we certainly expect the grade to go up quite a bit as you get into the fresh rock. And so the trenches are spectacular by terms of width and consistency of grade. They're 500 to 1,000 meters away from a target that's 600 meters wide. So mm. that's the kind of holes we're going to get to drill is from behind this trench to a target that call it 500 meters away, that 600 meter wide target. And, you know, that's where the hair kind of stands up in the back of your neck for the size of something that's, you know, it's massive. Now, when you're in an area, you have to look at what's nearby, what other major mines occurred and exist, and how do you relate? Um, the one that's closest that we, we draw a lot of comparisons to right now, there's a few of them, but one is called Las Bombas. And what's important about Las Bombas, first of all, it sold for $7.3 billion in the same year we we sold Caden in 2014. I believe $5.8 billion of the transaction was um, for the actual metal content. Now, at this part of the belt, they had copper and molybdenum. We have copper and gold. And so obviously gold is worth a lot more than molybdenum. And, uh, you know, we see a, a potential for the same scale of a deposit, but with gold instead of moly or molybdenum mm. as, the, as a secondary metal. Now, that being said, um, you know, we, we did go and having confidence in Sombrero last year, we screened 8,000 square kilometers. We took samples on it last year and we staked the best of what we could find in the region. And the whole reason why we even got Sombrero is because there is some cover, some imagined volcanoes erupted thousands of years, millions of years ago, and the volcanic ash covered a lot of rocks. So there isn't a lot of outcropping rocks in the region, just a few windows like we see at Sombrero. And, um, you know, we were first movers. We've seen, uh, we've barracks show up for his neos there. I've heard uh, Sumitomo staking ground as well as tech. And a lot of the big guys have come into the region now and we're certainly under the microscope. So, you know, if I was to summarize Sombrero, take the, the big 300 kilometer belt opportunity at Committee Bay, take the potential of three or four, you know, five plus million ounce discoveries and look at it in a southern climate with access year-round, with power lines running over the property, a highway to the property, and structures identified to date that compare in size to a mine that was bought out for uh, $7.3 billion back in uh, 2014. And, you know, for me, the targeting doesn't get much better um, than that. Um, I think Michael Henriksen had a good comment in his quote where he said, and, and this goes wears a lot of weight because of his peers are all former Newmont geologists, they said this ranks, I believe, as one of the best pre-drilling targets they've seen in their careers. And mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's a heavy statement from them because their careers extend a lot longer than mine. And, um, you know, I think if you read a bit further into his quote, you hear the word clarity a lot. 
And um, I'd say the one challenge in Committee Bay is there isn't clarity. It's tough. You're, you're going through cover and you're, you're reading which way the gold came from soils that had ice moving on top of soils. Sure, but in sure. Peru, when the guys talk about clarity, it's samples are taking a surface. It's very, very simple, important um, geological lines of evidence that are adding up to a very, very clear target. And so... For me, um, you know, if Committee Bay hits or not, I'm, we fall back on one of the best South American, you know, drill targets that I think a lot of us have seen in our careers uh, on the team. So it's pretty exciting. It really is exciting. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, drill results coming from Committee Bay and Homestake. But most of all, I think this sombrero thing is it's really, uh, it's really a reason to own some shares. Uh, the upside could be spectacular, no doubt about it. Well, thank you very much. We're out of time. Thank you for updating us on this uh, very, very good story. Uh, I hope my listeners will uh, go to the website and check it out because it's uh, definitely worth it or subscribe to my letter because I'll certainly be commenting on it as results come out. Thank you so much uh, for being with us again, and uh, we'll look to do it again sometime in the near future. Thanks so much, Jay. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. All right. You bet. Well, folks, come right back uh, with Jeff Deist after the break, and uh, we'll talk to him about some of the uh, political and economic issues of the day. Uh, I think uh, you're going to want to hear what Jeff has to say, so don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and um, I'm really pleased to have Jeff Dice with me again. He's the president of the Mises Institute. Uh, Jeff had been the uh, uh, had had been working with Ron Paul for a number of years. He was chief of staff to Ron Paul when he uh, was a presidential candidate the last time. 
Uh, and I've known Jeff for a number of years. He and I have uh, talked informally on mic and off mic uh, about a lot of things in the past. And uh, he, he definitely is uh, a, a real libertarian, a real a free market advocate. And so he fits very well with the Mises Institute. Thanks for joining me again, Jeff. Good afternoon, Jay. Really good to have you with me again. Um, how are things going at the Mises Institute? Well, they're going great, uh, not going as well with the economy at large and with what we're being told about the economy at large by people <laughs> in the financial press, and by people at the Fed, yeah. and by the administration, and, and even by the politicians themselves. But, uh, you, you know, we're, we are here trying to get what we would consider proper economics education out there to, to the public. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, would your economists in-house, the people that work with you, agree that maybe things are a tidbit better than they were during the Obama years, uh, but, but grossly overstated by the administration, by, the, by Wall Street? Well, they might be better in terms of the traditional measure of GDP, which, of course, is somewhat artificial because it includes government spending, among other things, and it also makes a fetish of exports over imports. So we're not big fans of GDP as a measure of the economy, but yes, I think a mainstream person could take a look at unemployment at, and at, at a GDP and say the economy's humming along pretty well. Here's the problem. The problem is that since the crash of 2008 and the Obama years, uh, there are many measures that have gotten worse. Uh, certainly worldwide debt, global debt, both at the governmental level, at the business level, at the household level, have all increased since 2008, and nobody has a real good answer or a real good plan of what we're going to do about that. Uh, the other canary in the coal mine is that interest rates remain very, very low. There are still uh, negative or almost negative interest rates being sold on European bonds. The federal funds rate here in the U.S. is below 3%. These are very abnormal interest rates historically, and they haven't produced the kind of robust economies that everyone thought that they would you know, after this long of a period. And, and here's the problem, Jay, is that let's say interest rates went to their, or were permitted to go to their more historical averages, somewhere between 5 and 10%. Well, that would be an awfully big burden for Congress to bear in, mm. in terms of their debt service as a, a line item in the federal budget. So uh, there's still there would still, I think... Uh, by our standards, anemic economic growth. There is still understated inflation. There is still understated unemployment. And most importantly, there is a mountain of debt that hasn't been dealt with. Well, the the Keynesians say, no problem. We can just create more debt on top of debt. We can create more money. Money, after all, is created out of thin air uh, or on the backs of debt. It is a, uh, you know, it's not an asset-based money. It's a debt-based money. And no problem, Jeff. We can always print more of it. And indeed, every time we have a breakdown of the system, that's what they do. Uh, can you envision another round uh, where, you know, something like 2008, 2009, or God forbid, worse happens that would uh, just end up being that much more government uh, money, Federal Reserve money that's created out of thin air that allows, that puts people further into debt and allows government to have more control over their lives? Because that's what I think is the ultimate price that we pay, is that enslavement means that you are now uh, a slave. I mean, in, indebtedness means that you become a slave to somebody if you, if you have debt. 
Well, there's no question that they that they are not going to uh, allow another crash like 2008 to happen without being far more aggressive on what last time they called QE, which was buying treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. This time, I think it'll go farther. Uh, just, I think yesterday we had somebody at the Boston Fed suggesting if we have another recession, that the Fed ought, ought to start buying stocks. Yeah, which of course that's the right. Japanese central bank has has done openly for years and years. So instead of the Fed being the buyer of last resort for treasuries, imagine it being the buyer of last resort for the FANG stocks or for the S&P 500. It's, it's certainly uh, not too far-fetched. And here's the thing. It, it may be true that we can go from $20 trillion in debt to $40 trillion in debt. It may be true that we can gin up some measure of positive GDP growth by stimulating the economy using monetary policy. But what we don't know is whether that can last and last and last forever. Uh, I think most Keynesians, Paul Krugman among them, would say, well, the dollar is the world's reserve currency, and it's backed by the full faith and credit of the most powerful government and military on earth. And as long as interest rates are low, it just doesn't much matter. Uh, That doesn't jive with history. Uh, It doesn't jive with common sense. And it's unprecedented. And I think that the people who are suggesting or cheering these really extraordinary measures, remember that term, extraordinary monetary policy, which we heard so much in those first couple of years after the 2008 crash. I think those people ought to be called out onto the carpet and asked to explain exactly how extraordinary became ordinary mm-hmm. and how it's going to work going forward. I don't think they have much of an explanation. I think they want us to believe that they are technocratic experts and that we shouldn't think of these things in terms of common sense or even the big picture civilizational questions. We ought to just sort of shut up and let them steer the ship. But we've seen before in 2001 and 2008, they don't much know what they're doing. And I would argue they haven't much known what they've been doing since. No doubt about that. Well, it seems to me, Jeff, if the Fed can go out, create money out of nothing, and, and Switzerland, by the way, has done this too. They've been buying American stocks, from what I understand, big, big uh, you know, big, big market cap stocks. Uh, if they can, can, if the Fed can create endless amounts of money out of thin air and go out and buy all the world, all the all the American resources and all the resources around the world, it would seem to me that basically what you're doing is putting more and more wealth in the hands of fewer and fewer people, which is of course what's been happening in spades since 2008, 2009, but a long, a lot longer back into back into the past than that, all the way back. I would argue till 1971 when we went off the gold standard. Uh, that you start to see actually the uh, the hollowing out of the middle class and the redistribution of wealth to the to the rich to the to the elite, right? Yeah, it it really is one of the biggest untold stories in U.S. history. David Stockman uh, tells a lot of it in his book, The Great Deformation, which was written just a few years after the crash. I'd love to right. hear more from him now, with the advantage of a decade. Of worth of hindsight, but it really is an almost unbelievable transfer of wealth from the moneyed classes to the non-moneyed classes. And if you read David Stockman, there's a particular chapter in his book. And if you believe David Stockman, agree with him, that that chapter lays out how and why the the Wall Street crisis would not have spread to Main Street; that it could have been contained through simply allowing more firms other than just Lehman Brothers to go kaput and mm-hmm. allowing the, the investors in those investment houses to lose money 
and allowing the shareholders and those commercial banks to lose money and liquidating the bad assets at the time rather than reinflating a bubble that, that we're staring at today, which is actually larger, as I mentioned earlier. So um, w- what really happened is that an awful lot of Wall Street connected people got bailed out yeah. and weren't, weren't called out to have skin in the game. They weren't required to take the losses. Um, so they managed to use gov- government and the Fed to socialize their losses when for the last decade or so, 20 years before that, they'd been privatizing the gain. So it's, it's a very unholy process. And the, the problem is, Jay, is that it gives our friends on the left a lot of ammo to say, see, look at, look at what free markets do. They just help <laughs> those greedy rich guys. Yeah. And we say, no, 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 that's not free markets. That's government meddling. That's monetary meddling by the Fed. Um, but, you know, they're, to, the, to an extent, our friends on the left are right. There is a class of undeserving rich who mm-hmm. have been uh, I- enriched far beyond uh, what they've produced in terms of value for society. They move money around rather than actually creating goods or services of value or even acting as a clearinghouse that moves money to its best and highest uses. When the FDIC, when the Fed, when TARP, when Congress, when whoever comes along and bails you out, uh, that creates not only an artificial economy, but an artificial group of rich folks, fat cats. Uh, so what, one of the worst things about all of this is it has blurred the distinction between free market capitalism and cronyism in a way yeah. that, that, that helps the narrative on the left. Yeah, it does. But then on the other hand, there are, I don't think, you know, a lot of those rich people are people that are very much, their, their politics are very much on the left, though. Is that, do you think that's maybe a oh, way oh. for them to, yeah. Sure. I mean, if you look at the financialization of the economy, Wall Street overwhelmingly donated money to Hillary Clinton, let's say, over Mitt Romney or over Donald Trump. If you look at the FANG stocks, which I would argue are uh, some or, or the whole Silicon Valley startup industry, the venture capital industry in Silicon Valley, which I, well, I would argue is grossly inflated due to artificially low interest rates. Yeah. Uh, Silicon Valley donates more than 80 percent, something like 90 percent to left or Democratic politicians. So there's no question about that. But here's the thing, Jay, that's so interesting. I saw Jim Carrey, the actor, uh, famous actor, was on um, Bill Maher's show the other night talking about, we have to start thinking about socialism. We have to stop treating that as yes. a dirty word. Now, his net worth is estimated between 100 and $150 million. <laughs> so here's the thing. If, let's say it's 100. If you wiped out 90% of his wealth, he'd still have $10 million. If you wipe out 90% of the wealth of, of, of the average show who has maybe $40,000 to his name, well, he, he's done. Yeah. He's so done. That's, the thing the about el- that's the thing about elites is that we never talk about the diminishing marginal utility of money. When you've got a, you know, the, going from zero to $1 million is a lot more important than going from 100 to $101 million. So we, we never talk about that. We, we never mention or they never mention the Warren Buffetts of the world, the Jim yes. Perry's of the world, that they will still be elites no matter what. So right. that's that. Th- so the amount of skin they have in the game is suspect. Yeah, and if you look at the average people, and I'm thinking, Jeff, if we go again, another kind of a financial disaster of, of one shape or form or another, anything like we had in 2008, 2009, I know uh, that the powers that be have set up the, everything for what they'll call bail-ins the next time. That is, 
they will simply decide that uh, if banks go bankrupt, uh, and, and legally they're, they're on sound ground to do it because most people don't realize that when they put money in the bank, they're actually lending, they're unsecured lenders to the bank. So if the bank uh, goes bankrupt or has problems financially, it can take those and, and default on those loans, essentially, on, your, on the deposits that people put uh, in the bank. And I guess that probably most people are unaware of that. Or they just think that 200000 or 100000 whatever it is, FDIC will always cover it, right? What, what are your thoughts about that? Are people, people should be just, just rest assured that they're going to be just fine, that if they've got, a, if they've got uh, 50000 bucks in the bank, it's, it's safe and secure? Well, the FDIC is utterly insolvent in terms of its potential payouts. Mm-hmm. There's no question there's not enough, enough FDIC funds, which are, which are actually funded by banks themselves. Um, there's, there's no question that FDIC does not have the money to bail out every investor or in the bank investor in the U.S. or should, depositor, I should say, uh, up to the FDIC limit. So that's, that's absolutely uh, mathematically true. Uh, but what a lot of people don't know is it's not just banks. You might want to take a look at the terms of your money market or mutual fund accounts as well. A lot of mutual yes, funds right. allow them allow them to freeze or suspend withdrawals, and a lot of them allow them to pay you in another asset owned by the fund rather than in cash. In other words, they mm-hmm. could gin up uh, a supposed fair market value of some other stock uh, from another fund that you didn't hold and pay you in that. So. Uh, it, it's not always so obvious that you're going to be able to redeem your money. You, what, what, what you think you own tends to be a lot of electronic blips on a screen and data um, stored on a server somewhere. And that's not the same thing as money. Uh, I think we're all a little bit naive about that. And, and that's okay. I don't, I don't mean to, you know, we, we haven't had big crises in this country um, real bank runs since the 30s. So, mm-hmm. you know, a sense of complacency and inertia is to be understood. But I'll tell you what, people who live uh, in, in a lot of places like Venezuela sure yeah. wish that they had some stuff rather than some, some bank notes at this point. Yeah. yeah, a lot of places. Argentina, again, uh, going a lot of countries, uh, emerging markets having problems right now. Well, Jeff, your boss used to, Ron Paul, used to talk about one of the reasons there's so much rancor and so much hatred, and this was before it's gotten as bad as it has now, is because the more government does, the more they divide us. You pass a law that helps one group, you hurt another group, and so on and so forth. Do you, would you blame a lot of the, uh, you know, most, most everybody wants to blame Donald Trump for all the, all the rancor, all the hostility that's flying around these days, but to what extent would you say, you know, economic policy, for example, or uh, taxes or, or one thing or another, uh, is really what your boss was talking about, what, what Ron Paul was talking about. You're, you're hurting one group to help another. Do you think that the government, government policy, growing government policy uh, power is really what's, what's, more than anything else, what's dividing Americans? Yeah, isn't it interesting? I guess I stopped working for Dr. Paul at the end of 2012, and those seem like quaint, nostalgic days compared uh-huh. to now. Yeah. Trump was not yet on the scene, at least as a presidential candidate. Uh, look, the, they're they're dividing us in ways that we just couldn't even imagine. And I heard Bob Murphy. Some of your listeners will be familiar with the economist uh-huh. Bob Murphy. Yes. I heard him say, "Look, look, look at the way the economy is going right now, and we're all at our throats. Imagine if we had this degree of identity 
politics and hostility. But with the crash of 2008, what would what would the landscape look like then? It, there, there's no question. There's from a po- pure policy perspective. I mean, actual implemented policies. There's not a whole lot of difference between Trump and what maybe Hillary Clinton or Mitt Romney or somebody else would have done. They all would uh-huh. have sort of continued doing what we're doing in the Middle East. They would have sort of continued doing what we're doing in terms of monetary policy with Jerome Powell. They would have sort of continued what we're doing with tax and regulatory policy. And, and here's the thing. If you could take a person and isolate them, hypothetically, and not expose them to any people or media, social or traditional media, since the, the election of 2016, they, they probably, and, and, and put them in some town in Wyoming or someplace, they probably would, would not be able to tell a, any difference in their life as a result yeah. of Hillary Clinton winning or Donald Trump winning. Uh-huh. But if you go on Twitter all day, you think that this was the biggest seismic event in the history of politics, that the whole right. world somehow just fell off a cliff and changed forever and ever on that date. So it's th- this is hyperbole. And what, what really bothers me is we're going to hear for the umpteenth time this ridiculous narrative about how this is the, the midterms coming up are the most important elections of our lifetime. If I hear that one more time, I think I'm going to lose my lunch permanently, Jay, because it is the biggest crock. I mean, even as the divisiveness and rancor is is growing to almost epic proportions, identity politics, the the actual policy differences are narrowing. They're mm-hmm. narrowing each and every day. And we saw we saw this at McCain's funeral. We saw how the media reacted to this, you know, to this guy who represents neoconservatism and Hillary Clinton represents neoliberalism. And you can't, you can barely squeeze a dime no. between those two ideologies in terms of their actual implemented policy, not what they say, yes. not what they claim to care about, but what they actually do in terms of policy. There's not a dime's worth of difference. And that's what makes this whole thing so absurd. And, and sometimes it makes me wish, and I hate to say this, but sometimes it makes me wish we didn't have social media because it's bringing out the worst in us. Yeah. Well, it's it certainly is. Uh, uh, it seems to be fanning the flames. That's for sure. Uh, and it's just so much rancor and hatred. And uh, I don't think there's any any need for it. I, I really don't. Although, you know, it seems as though I, I did want to ask you some things today. We're just about out of time, so I don't think there's going to be time. But in terms of uh, some of the policies that that um, Donald Trump ran on, and some of the things he talked about, to me, seemed pretty close to a lot of the things that Ron Paul was espousing. That would be less military action overseas, less action, and and uh, doing more trading with countries, other countries. Um, and I think um, I don't know if you if you feel that way or not. But in terms of policy, now not not anything uh, to do with their personalities, because uh, Dr. Paul is a very educated person, very smooth, very very reasonable, very nice uh, human being. Uh, I don't know Don Ron. I don't know um, Don Trump anywhere nearly as well. I did meet your boss a few times, and to me, he was just always a gentleman, uh, very caring person. Uh, but putting aside those things, I think you know Trump wouldn't have had Ron's understanding of economics. That's for sure. But he had, uh, I think, a, a savvy. He has a, sa- a business. Uh, experience in business and probably has a sense of what would be good for the country, but it seems like the idea of of anybody wanting to cut back the military spending, a military-industrial complex, it just isn't going to happen. 
Yeah, and it's so tragic. Even if he just left everything else alone, if he left Korea alone, if he left Russia alone, if he left Iran alone, and just take your pick, got us out of one of the following, got us out of Yemen, Syria, Afghanistan, or Iraq. If he just got us out of one of those four and did nothing else, you'd have to view his presidency as a success relative to the last two presidents since 9-11. And the fact that he can't even do that, despite whatever temperament he might have or might have had going into this thing, shows you the power, the power of the foreign policy lobby on both Mm -hmm. sides of the aisle and just the, the, uh, the, the power, the inertia behind the status quo. I mean, to think that we couldn't even get out of one of those conflicts, we can't even get out of Afghanistan at the longest war in U.S. history. All right, Jeff, we just got, I ju- we just got a minute. Uh, I want to mention that you, you said in a speech that I watched at the Mises Institute uh, on your website at Mises.org, uh, you were pretty upbeat about things. You said to some students that you were lecturing, you said intellectual landscape today is far more favorable to markets and Austrian economics in 30, 50, or 100 years ago. Uh, with 30 seconds, can you comment on that? Why yeah, do you I say think that? it's true. I think, uh, especially after the Great Depression and after Keynes released his general theory, uh, th- there were a lot more people th- who thought socialism and communism were the economic future for the world, and this was inevitable. And mm-hmm. they would never have predicted what would happen in the second half of the 20th century. So the the fact that we're even talking about free markets and libertarianism, uh, I think, is a great, great stride forward. And, and the fact that we can do so openly and robustly and that there's plenty of content anyone can go read, I think, is a huge victory. And we ought not to sleep right. on it because previous generations didn't have the luxury. All right. We'll have to leave it go with that, Jeff. Uh, folks, go to Mises.org. Mises.org. Lots of good stuff there. A lot of good articles Jeff has a weekly uh, podcast there he does. It's always worth listening to if you care at all about free market economics. We do have to say goodbye. That's all the time we have this week. Next week, Thomas Coughlin, CEO of Kinesis Limited, and Nolan Watson, the CEO of Sandstorm Gold, will be with me. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Often referred to as one of the best teams in junior gold exploration, having discovered a 5 million ounce gold mine and sold a second company amidst discovery, the management behind Orin Resources now has a world-class exploration portfolio within Canada and Peru. Projects that give the company one of the largest direct pipelines for major discoveries globally, with one of the deepest technical teams to explore them. Entering into its third year of aggressive pursuit, Orin is expecting results from two of their major projects throughout the rest of this year. For the latest, head to orinresources.com and subscribe.